Good morning, church. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, welcome uh, to this third Sunday of Advent. Jesus Christ is born. God became flesh and dwelt among us. And our hearts are filled with wonder and gratitude and praise for the great unspeakable gift that Jesus Christ is. And so once again, good morning. Great to see you today. For those of you who had to take the detour in order to get here, glad you made it. Um, they do everything they can to mess it, mess it up, right? On Sunday morning, I, I don't know. We, we also encountered some sound difficulties this week as our soundboard went out. And uh, not a good time of the year for it to go. Uh, but we are grateful to Grace Fellowship for providing for us a soundboard on loan. And so Jim Terrell has spent about 16 hours setting up our soundboard in order to make it through this Sunday and next Sunday. And so let's express our appreciation, shall we? Thank you, Jim. Thank you, brother. Good to see all of you. If you're here for the first time, we do want to extend a, a warm Christmas welcome to you. Thanks for choosing to spend worship with us this morning. It is December 17th of 2023, and God is on his throne today, and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and go with me, if you will, to Daniel chapter 8. We'll be reading the entire chapter in just a few moments in Daniel chapter 8. There is no abide this week, and so growth groups get a break for Christmas. We will resume on January 7th with the Abide, and for that week following, uh, the growth groups will begin for 2024. And special thanks to everyone who, who hosted and came out on Friday night for our Jingle Jam. It was a great evening, and uh, thanks for being a part of it for all of you families, for the kids coming. Uh, what a rich, great time that was. Let me invite you to join me once again in prayer as we prepare to, to read God's Word. Father in heaven, how we are grateful to you for all that you have done for us. Our hearts swell up and they lift in adoration to you. For you have done, Father, for us what we could never have done for ourselves. Father, we, we could not have gone to you by our own effort. But rather the glory of it all, Father, is that you chose to come down to us. That is grace. That is mercy. And we are overwhelmed. For in giving us Jesus Christ, you gave us salvation. You accomplished redemption. Long awaited, long necessary. For to be lost in sin with no hope is the essence of misery. But to find Christ, or better, Christ finding us. Father, there is no comparison. And so we praise you. As we prepare to open your word today and read from it during this Advent season, I would invite you to stand in my body and to think with my mind and speak through my mouth all the things you would have us hear and say and feel and do. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And then in the name of Christ we ask. Amen. 
The land of Israel is one of the most coveted pieces of real estate on the planet. Its position on the map has led some to call it the belly button of the earth. Strategically located as it is at the crossroads of Europe, Asia, and Africa. And Israel has been the hub of fascination for many of history's greatest empires and also history's greatest military leaders from Joshua and David to Nebuchadnezzar to Alexander the Great to Napoleon. One New Testament writer has stated every 44 years out of the last 4,000, every 44 years out of the last 4,000 on average, an army has marched through it, whether to conquer it, to rescue it from someone else, to use it as a neutral battleground in which to fight an enemy, or to take advantage as the natural route for getting somewhere else to fight instead. The land of Israel is, is both beautiful and battered. In Daniel chapter 8, verse 9, the prophet calls it the glorious land, the beautiful land. What makes this stretch of land, no larger than the state of New Jersey, so special? Well, with your Bibles open this morning to Daniel chapter 8, this eighth chapter of Daniel is a remarkable chapter. It is, it is pure prophecy, and it, it is so accurate in its prediction that it is totally mind-blowing. In this chapter, God reveals to Daniel the flow of history from his day forward for the next 350 years. Imagine that. History laid plain before you for the next three and a half centuries. So the vision Daniel receives here does indeed predict the future. For us, it will be prophecy fulfilled. It will be history for us. But it should not dim the fascination in any way. It is no less staggering for us to see how God was getting the world ready for the birth of Christ than it is for us to look back and see how he did it. That's where Daniel chapter 8 takes us. Jesus Christ is the hinge of history. It is no exaggeration to say that, that everything that took place before his birth was preparation for his first advent, and everything that has taken place since his birth is now preparation for his second advent. All of history turns on the life of Jesus Christ. And as we saw with Daniel chapter 7 last week, this chapter utilizes some apocalyptic language, not as much as last week, but apocalyptic language stirs the imagination. It, it again is filled with metaphors and symbols, but it also in this chapter uses plain language so that we do not miss the point. In his vision, Daniel sees a ram, a goat, and then a king with a bold face who will trigger a time of, indign of indignation, a time of great trouble that is coming. We're going to see that the acts of terror 
unleashed by Hamas in southern Israel on October 7th was nothing new. This chapter, as we will read through it, breaks down in two main parts. I just want you to see those two main parts before we read. There is a vision that is given to Daniel recorded in the first 14 verses. And then the vision is explained in verses 15 through 26. It wraps up in verse 27 with Daniel's response. It is all prophecy. And what is prophecy? It is history written in advance. One more footnote before I read. It's just striking to me that Daniel chapters 2 through 7 were written in Aramaic. That was the language of the Babylonian Empire. It was the language that, that Daniel spoke when he lived there. He learned it. It was also, interestingly, the language that Jesus spoke. It was probably his native tongue. This chapter, chapter 8, and the chapter that we're going to look at next week was written in Hebrew. And that indicates for us something in Daniel's mind that at least not only was he himself bilingual, but that there is something about Daniel chapter 8 and what follows that is unique for the Hebrew people. The Jews, the people of God, needed especially to hear this chapter. So all of that as introduction, let me invite you to stand for the reading of God's, God's Word this morning. Daniel chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel. After that which appeared to me at the first, that was chapter 7. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was... I was at the Uli Canal, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him. Remember, the beast is a symbol for another empire. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue him from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat come from the, came from the west over the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, and he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. And then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven." Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with a regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. 
And then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be, shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it, and behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man, and I heard a man's voice between the banks of Uli, and it called Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. Gabriel's been around a long time, hasn't he? So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face, but he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. And he said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, here we are helped. These are the kings of Media and Persia. Verse 21, And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from, from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does. And destroy mighty men, the people who are the saints, by his cunning. He shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall rise, even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken. But by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. But seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. And this is God's holy and inspired word to us. And all of it is true. And God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. you know your Old Testament history, you know that 586, 587 B.C. stands out as one of those seminal events. Jerusalem was conquered, and the people of Israel were taken captive, hostage to Babylon, where they would remain for 70 years. It was the first time since the land was conquered by Joshua, that the people of Israel were disposed into a foreign nation. Daniel was among the first in that wave of exiles taken to Babylon, and, and he spent mo most of his life in that city. Babylon da Babylon's days, though, were numbered. But while it still ruled the world, God gave to Daniel a vision of two future kingdoms. Again, get this. He is, he is in Babylon, the most powerful empire 
in the world. It is about to fall, but no one would have imagined it. While Daniel is then given a vision of two future kingdoms that is to come. One is depicted as a ram and the other as a goat. The ram is depicted for us in the first four verses, the interpretation given in verse 20. The ram is, as the interpretation provides, the kingdom of Medo-Persia. It's depicted by a ram because often when the ruler of Persia stood at the head of his army, he wore a ram's head above. So by the time of this vision, the Babylonian Empire, which again was in full standing, was virtually finished. Belshazzar, who is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, is on the throne. He is the last king of Babylon. He is the one who in chapter 5 is given the handwriting on the wall to tell him his time was up. But what's remarkable is that in this vision, Daniel is transported to the city of Susa, which was a Babylonian fortress. But what makes that stand out is that Susa will then become the citadel of Medo-Persia. It will become, if you will, the capital of the next kingdom that appears on the horizon. And if you also know your Old Testament, you know that that becomes the home of the likes of Esther and Nehemiah. Persia defeated Babylon in 539 BC. There will be a few dates for you this morning, so forgive me if, if you're not fond of historical dates, but they do matter because, again, Babylon is defeated in 539 BC. And as a result of that, Israel's future is forever altered. Fifty years after Babylon conquered Jerusalem, Babylon was then conquered by Medo-Persia. And in his vision, Daniel sees this ram with two horns or powers. And again, they represent the kingdoms of Medo-Persia led by Darius and Cyrus. But as we saw in chapter 7 last week, where Medo-Persia was represented as a bear that is larger on one side than the other, eventually the kingdom of Medo would be swallowed up by Persia. We are told that at its apex, no other beast, no other kingdom could withstand the power of Persia. In 557, Cyrus comes to power. This is Cyrus the Great, one of the, one of the heroes, really, of the Jewish people who was not Jewish himself. He comes to power. He grows stronger than the Medes. He dominates the region for the next 200 years. Again, he takes Babylon in 539 B.C., and then in one of his very first acts as emperor, in 536 B.C., he permits the Jews to return home and to rebuild the temple under Zerubbabel. This is amazing. This is staggering. A Jewish state would exist in Judea again, but under the rule of Persia. The story of Israel's gradual return from exile is, is recorded for us in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Also, some of the prophets like Haggai speak of their return. It took about five years after the return to build the temple. You'll remember Haggai, who 
who rebuked the people of Israel at one point because while they had started strong and laid the foundation for the temple, then they got busy building their own homes. And he said, how can you allow the temple of God to lie in ruins? Get busy, get back to work and build the temple. And so it takes five years to do it so that in 515 BC, the temple is rebuilt. Finally, in 446, quite a few years later, the walls of Jerusalem were finally completed in order that the city might be secure and safe that is done under the leadership of Nehemiah. That is the last recorded event of the Old Testament. At the end of the book of Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, the Jews are back in the land, but again they're under the rule of Persia. The Old Testament closes. The next 400 years have been called the silent years. Silent because there was no prophetic voice being heard in Israel for those four centuries. But these years between the Old Testament and New Testament were, were anything but silent because a new power was arising under the leadership of a man by the name of Alexander. And that's where Daniel takes us next in his vision, beginning in verse 5. Verses 5 through 8, he unfolds for us the kingdom of Greece. Again, under the leadership of Alexander the Great, this part of Daniel's vision is explained in verses 21 and 22. And the second empire that Daniel sees in this vision is depicted as a goat. And it is not a coincidence that the sea surrounding Greece is the Aegean Sea, but oftentimes nicknamed the, the, the Goat Sea somewhere looking like a goat in its, in its design. The Bible here predicts the rise of Alexander the Great. But get this, it does it 200 years before he appeared. That is unheard of. That is called divine inspiration. That's called the Bible. And if you want to build your trust and confidence in the Word of God, Daniel chapter 8 is such a wonderful place to go. Because here again, history is predicted 200 years in advance, detailing for us exactly what is to happen. The Bible is under the inspiration of God. He makes things known to us that can be known no other way. In fact, Daniel's prophecy here is so accurate that, that there have been scholars who have tried to refute the traditional dating of Daniel's writing, saying it must have come much later, but after the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1948, it ended all debate because among those scrolls, they found a manuscript of Daniel dating back to his day. So Daniel was not writing actual history. He is writing predictive prophecy. He's telling us again in advance what is going to happen. Now, Alexander was the horn between the goat's eyes. He was born in 356 BC. His father was Philip, the king of Macedon. His mother was the raven-haired Olympias, who was an extremely ambitious and manipulative woman. She flirted with sorcery. She slept with snakes. There was a lot going on with her. And she adored her son. 
And a part of Alexander's mystique was that his father hired Aristotle to be his tutor. His career was extraordinary, though brief. In 333 or 330 BC, he led Greece into a head-on collision with the Persian Empire. Alexander had an army of about 30,000 men. He went up against a Persian force of about 100,000. Persia lost 20,000 in this battle. Alexander lost 100. His campaigns were so swift, it was as if, and Daniel sees this in his vision, he is floating above the surface of the earth. In six years, he not only conquered Persia, but he extended his empire from Greece to India. He changed the entire world in little more than a decade. It was such a phenomenal feat, and, and yet amid such great success, thinking that he was actually truly a descendant of Zeus, he self-destructed. I mentioned last week that, that he probably got drunk and and drank himself to death in a tent in Babylon. Others think he was poisoned, but he dies at the age of 32. All kinds of stories surround Alexander, but one of the more intriguing for our purpose this morning is told by Josephus, who was the famous Jewish historian. One night before he set out on his campaigns early on, Alexander had a dream. And he had a dream of a man in a purple robe, and the man told him to amass an army and to march against Persia. And so Alexander went out and conquered. And after conquering Persia, he came to the land of Israel. He conquered Samaria before he came into Judea and then eventually Jerusalem. As he approached the holy city, Jadua, the high priest, went out to greet Alexander. Again, this is a story between the Testaments. Jadua was surrounded by priests who were arrayed in white, and he stood out because he was wearing purple. And when Alexander saw him, he recognized the man in his dream. And Jadua said to Alexander the Great, the God of heaven told us you were coming. And in an amazing moment, as Josephus records it, Jadua reads to him Daniel chapter 8. He reads to him a prophecy written 200 years before about him and about his conquests and about the fact that he was this mighty goat. And as a result, Alexander left the city of Jerusalem unharmed. Why? God is preserving his nation, and God is preserving his temple for something else that was to come. Wherever Alexander went, the culture became Hellenized. It became Greek. It even adopted the Greek language. And so a little over 300 years before the birth of Jesus, Jews were speaking the common tongue of Greece. They were speaking Koine Greek, which eventually becomes the language of the New Testament. In fact, around 250 B.C., 250 years before the birth of Christ, the Old Testament was translated into Greek by six men drawn from 12 tribes. This translation was known as the Septuagint. 
Why? Because it took 72 days for this Bible to be translated from Hebrew into Greek, and it was this Bible that was read by Jesus. It was this Bible that was read by his disciples. It was this Bible that was read by the Apostle Paul. Do you see how God is putting everything into place? Alexander again died at the age of 32 in Babylon at the peak of his strength. And as Daniel predicted in verse 8, then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong at the height of his power, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. And since Alexander had no heir, his empire, we saw this last week as well, but now Daniel says it again in this vision in chapter 8, is divided into four parts, divided among his four generals. Cassander took Macedonia and Greece, Lysimachus took Thrace, Bithynia and Asia Minor, Seleucus was given Syria all the way to India, and then Ptolemy, who was one of his childhood friends, took Egypt, North Africa, Arabia, Israel, or Judea. And he becomes king or lord over Egypt itself. As a result, though, whether you remember those four generals or not, Judea is struck or stuck right there in the middle between Ptolemy and Egypt and Seleucus, who would be in Syria. Israel's that landmass right between. Eventually, after a lot that happens at this moment, Israel is annexed to Syria and divided into five sections. Sections like Judea, Samaria, Galilee, Perea, and Trachonitis. Names that become very familiar to us as we read the New Testament. So it was during this Syrian power control over Israel that the most tragic moment for the Jews, the most tragic moment in the intertestamental period took place, which leads us to verses 9 through 14. As Daniel predicts the the rise of a bold-faced king who would trigger this time of indignation. He is the little horn of verses 9 through 14. So while in verses 1 through 4 we look at an empire, in verses 5 through, through 8 we look at another empire led by this horn between the goat's eyes, Now we have another horn who appears in verses 9 through 14, whose name will become recognizable to us as Antiochus Epiphanes. And then this part of Daniel's vision will be explained in verses 23 through 26. But again, as I mentioned, Judea came under Syrian control around 198 BC. Time is moving forward. Time is is slowly moving towards the eventual birth of Christ. And this leader who troubled the Jews the most, this Antiochus Epiphanes, reigned from Syria from about 175 to 164 B.C. Antiochus was actually the family name. He then gives himself the name Epiphanes. We get our word epiphany from it, but the word means a manifestation. Antiochus Epiphanes declared himself to be God. God in human flesh. And he unleashed a reign of terror over Judea and Jerusalem that has earned him the moniker as the Hitler of the Old Testament. 
A terrible time was coming for the Jewish people, but its end has already been appointed. But again, the staggering thing is Daniel makes all of this known years and centuries in advance. Now, before Antiochus inherited the throne of his father, the Jews were allowed to live in Jerusalem under the Torah, were directed by the high priest and the Jewish council. But Antiochus Epiphanes was a horrific anti-Semite. And he attacked the Jews with a vengeance. And his atrocities have been well documented. Daniel predicts them all. He plunders Jerusalem. He interferes with holy things. He makes reading the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, an offense. Daniel says he throws truth to the ground. He sacrifices pigs on the altar in the temple. He sends soldiers into Jerusalem, and massacres people by the thousands. He killed 100,000 Jews, sent 40,000 of them into slavery. He murdered women, he murdered pregnant mothers, and his hatred was not just against the Jewish people, his hatred was against God. It's also during this same time that we learn the story, some of the great stories between the testaments of, of the priest Eleazar, who rather than sacrifice a pig to Zeus on the altar in the temple, chose death instead. There is a faithfulness among the Jewish people during that time between the testaments that really is amazing. But the time of indignation that Daniel had predicted had come. And in his vision, Daniel heard one of the members of the divine council ask the question, how long? I mean, when you're in trouble, that's the question you ask, right? How long is this going to happen? Verse 13, then I heard a, a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, these are members of the divine council speaking to one another, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate? You might know this as the abomination of desolation and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot. And the answer that is given to the question, how long? And by the way, not always, if ever, very seldom, is that question answered. We may say to God, how long? And the answer is always not forthcoming. Here it is. Verse 14, and he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state an interesting statement, isn't it? For 2,300 evenings and mornings. That could be 2,300 days, or it could refer to 2,300 sacrifices, morning and night total. So it's either a total number of days or a total number of sacrifices, making it then 1,150 days or three years. As the story unfolds, even right here, the exact time of what is meant by these 2,300 mornings and evenings becomes clear. Let's keep going. Remember that Daniel, by the way, and his exiles are still in Babylon. So that during Daniel's time, there is no temple that is standing in Jerusalem. It's been destroyed. So this prophecy, as the people of God are reading it, is both good news and bad news for them. The good news is that it indicates that a new temple was going to be built in Jerusalem and it would be standing in a few centuries. It was built in 515 B.C. It was this temple that would be standing 
when Jesus arrived. But the bad news is, is that this temple would be desecrated. And when the temple was shut down, many of the Jews fled the city. And while hiding out in the desert, a group of, of rebels, of Jewish rebels, began to organize. And one man by the name of Matthias Maccabee emerged as the leader. And Matthias had five sons, one of them by the name of Judas, who was nicknamed the Hammer. And they were a part of a zealous group known as the Hasidim. By the way, this group becomes the forerunner of the Pharisees that we will then meet in the New Testament. And they began to conduct a guerrilla raids into Jerusalem and overtake the city and flush out the Syrians. And in 165, the priesthood was reconsecrated. So the question that was raised a moment ago, how long will this last? How long would the desecration be? Antiochus set up the pagan altar in the temple on December 25th, 168 BC. The sacrifices were then resumed three years later exactly, on December 25th, 165 BC. Exactly 1,150 days later. And for the first time in a thousand years, Israel was finally free from foreign control. It wouldn't last long because the Romans come next. But when the Maccabean brothers restored the temple, they celebrated its recovery with a festival of rededication and lit a lamp. And that festival of rededication is known as Hanukkah, the festival of lights, which concluded this past Friday. And what is outstanding, one of the miracles they say during that period was that normally the oil in the lamp that was lit in the sanctuary lasted only for a day. But on this occasion, the oil burned and it remained burning as light for eight days. Hence, the Festival of Lights, Hanukkah, is honored today with an eight-candle menorah. Now, when we come to the New Testament, Jesus celebrated the Feast of Dedication in John chapter 10. Jesus himself celebrated Hanukkah. And we read in verse 22 of John 10, and just listen, at that time the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. That's a good question. If you're the Messiah, tell us. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then in John 10, verse 30, Jesus declares, I and the Father are one. Are you the Christ? Tell us plainly. Jesus, in effect, says, I am. Back to Daniel 8. 
In verse 15, Daniel writes, When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man, and I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli. That's, that's a canal that runs alongside the Zusa Palace. And it called Gabriel. I love the fact that Gabriel was here. By the way, one of only two angels named in the Bible. Michael is the other. And I love Gabriel's name. It means God's hero. Any Gabriels here? None. Anybody with a middle name? Wow. Mom, dad's next baby, okay? Um, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, verse 18, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. He said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. I read it again because that is such an important statement. It is a vision that pertains to the time of the end. What end? to the latter end. What is the latter end? It is not only the end of Antiochus's atrocities. Antiochus himself becomes the foreshadowing of another figure who is to arise, known as the Antichrist. And in some way that is just remarkable, again, when it comes to Scripture itself, God has not only clearly predicted the future through Daniel for what was to come in the next 350 years of his life, but he takes us all the way to the end of of human history and tells us what things will be like at the end. And here at the end of the age, there will be another king of bold face, and his intent will be to drive Israel into annihilation. In other words, another holocaust is coming, the likes of which October 7th is just a precursor. And this final holocaust, led by the Antichrist, will wipe out two-thirds of the Jewish people. And like Antiochus, here he says of that figure that is yet to come, that at the height of his power, when prosperity is still in his hands, he will be, he will be conquered. Yes, he will throw truth down. Yes, he will be on a massive ego trip. Yes, he will stand against Christ and those who follow Christ. But he will be ultimately destroyed supernaturally. I share all of that because all of that story itself comes And the very first messianic prophecy declared in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 15. So long before Daniel even mentioned all of this that was to come, God himself announces by his his own words what the stage of history will be, not only leading to the birth of Christ, but eventually to the second coming of Christ. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it's all here when God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He is speaking here to the serpent and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here he is speaking of Satan. He is speaking of our great adversary. He is, he is speaking of the devil himself. And he says here that even the devil has a seed, an offspring. 
who is the offspring of Satan, but the Antichrist. The offspring of the serpent is not limited to the sin of humanity, but it will be embodied in a person. And yet, this, this figure will do some damage, but will ultimately be crushed by the seed of the woman, by Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I could preach an entire series of sermons, I think, on Genesis 3.15 alone because it's all there. The incarnation, the virgin birth, the cross of Christ, the atonement, the resurrection, the reality of spiritual warfare, the antichrist, the end of the world, the final victory of Christ. It's, it's, it is all there. Why? Not only does God reveal to us the future to calm our fears, God reveals the future in order for us to see and to take confidence in the fact that He is the Lord of history. History is His work. History is His story. And He is unfolding it then and now. There is no reason for us to fear. Sometimes it looks like the enemy may be winning, but God ultimately controls the future. And he controlled it in those days leading up to the birth of Christ as he set all the empires in place. And by the way, all those empires were just moved like pawns in God's hand in order for the arrival of Christ to occur. So he is setting everything in place for the second advent, for the second coming of Christ, for his majestic return. So in verse 27, Daniel says, man, I was overcome. And I lay sick for some days, and then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision. Yeah, appalled, because it meant trouble was coming. But, beloved, never forget this. We, in Christ, are on the winning side. God has made that known in the writing of this book. We have read the last page and Christ is victorious, and we ride in his wake. We walk in his victory. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the King of kings, and he is above all. Let's celebrate his coming, both as a babe and the next time for good. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and thank you for allowing us to see so much in it today in a remarkable way, a vision of history given before it happened. Father, if that does anything, it really does give us confidence in your word to believe it, to trust it, to hold it up against critics, no matter who, who attempts to throw it down or burn it or get rid of it, your word stands. It is living. It is powerful. It is plain. That in such a fascinating way, you were moving all of the chess pieces on the board of earth into the right places to prepare for the arrival of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And Father, you're doing the same thing today, even as you're moving things into place, and sometimes that movement brings pain, sometimes there's loss, sometimes there's tribulation. 
but you're moving all of those pieces into place because you're getting ready for the most magnificent thing of all when the king returns and he takes his rightful place on the throne of all of the universe hail Jesus Christ king of kings and lord of lords we worship you and we praise you for coming the first time and we look forward with anticipation to your arrival the second time come Lord Jesus, come. And while it may seem that, that wrong right now is winning, the right will ultimately prevail. To the glory of Christ, we say. And all of God's people prayed.